You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Full Moon The moon rode with us all the way from west to east, so bright at first I couldn't look. Here, two miles high in a Boeing 777, slowly my eyes adjusted to the sheen of it a pulsing mirrored circle alongside me in the dark. I touched my leather rucksack, safe beneath my seat, my mother's necklace, bluegrass perfume, the turquoise ring, assuring myself I had all I needed. Tilted forward in my seatbelt to the porthole, I gazed full on at the great silver disk of the moon, the terrible press of thin, cold glass on my forehead. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name's Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next half hour of poetry and conversation about poetry. We're kicking off 2020 in the company of Aileen Ballantyne. Aileen was once a, a journalist. She worked as a medical correspondent for, amongst others, The Guardian and The Sunday Times. She's now a poet and tutor at Edinburgh University. Her debut collection, Taken Flight, was published recently by Lewis Press. And one of the things I really like about the collection is the way that she brings her journalistic eye to the writing of poetry. And you particularly see that in a sequence of poems about Lockerbie, the Lockerbie disaster, which you will recall took place in 1988 and is still uh, the worst terrorist atrocity to take place on British soil. As you'll hear, Ballantyne was working at The Guardian when the story started to come in. Taking flight, however, doesn't solely concern uh, Lockerbie. Uh, The title hints at a number of different ways in which uh, one can look at flight. And her poems uh, examine, for example, her childhood visits to the United States via plane. And also looks at the moon landings, which were celebrating their 50th anniversary at the time that we recorded our conversation towards the end of 2019. So I think without much further ado, we'll just jump into the interview and I'll see you on the other side. Aileen, the collection's called Taking Flight, published by Lewith. And the collection works through a number of ways the title could be interpreted, doesn't it? Yes, I think uh, the fascination for flight, for me, perhaps started at the age of about eight. Uh, My much older sister decided to immigrate to Canada. Just the sheer... Excitement, I suppose, uh, of seeing somebody go off and live a completely different life. And then we went to visit her when I was about 10. We went to New York. She saved up on a nurse's salary. And we had this amazing trip. And literally, I had never been any further than our both before then. And I think just having that connection to somebody on the other side of the world who was sending things throughout my childhood, sending me dried ice cream from NASA. It was just a door onto another world, I suppose, and that's something that uh, probably had an impact, yeah. Mm. As we're going to explore in this podcast, flight has several different meanings in it. There's different topics, so there's, um, as we're going to talk about Alzheimer's, as we're going to talk about, there's the, the, the moon landings and moonshots. And also one of the things that you talk about in a sequence of poems that are very um, moving and fascinating from the lively detail is Lockerbie and Pan Am Flight uh, 103. You have a number of poems about 
what we were discussing earlier is it's still the worst terrorist incident to happen on on British soil. I was wondering if we could talk about that and we could start by the fact that you were the Guardian's medical correspondent Mm. uh, working in London when the first reports of the Lockerbie incident came in. That's correct, yes. Um, And when something like that happens in in a newsroom, I guess everybody is just trying to find out what they can in any way that they can. And I started to ring various numbers that I had for rescue workers. And I found myself talking from the London office to somebody on what must have been a very early mobile phone um, and giving me very detailed information about what he was seeing from the cockpit of the plane. And I, dutifully as reporters do, wrote it down and we were all, as I say, trying to find out what was what. And it became obvious, of course, that we couldn't publish that at that point. In fact, we never did publish it. But the fascination, I suppose, and the interest has stayed with me. And when I started writing poetry about eight or nine years ago, uh, it was something that surfaced again and I decided to research it in a completely different way on the basis that perhaps you can say something useful as a poet that you perhaps couldn't see as a journalist. So that was the idea that interested me about Mm. it, but using journalistic techniques as well. Well, I mean, that is one of the things that really interests me about those Lockerbie poems, because you found a way to mesh detail, I think, that is simultaneously poetic uh, and, and documentary style at the same time. So you have that poem, Toothpaste, where... One of the things you write about it is about the toothpaste tubes in the luggage. Uh, mm. When the plane crashed, they, they burst under the sort of changing air pressure, I guess. And to me, that was a very uh, poetic image, I guess, for the, the people, the victims of the, the crash as well. But you, don't, you, you never say that. You just talk about the actual the, the toothpaste. And so it was, for me, a very interesting way of merging the documentary and the poetic. Yeah, this was something which happened as a result of the women in Lockerbie, mainly women, volunteering to try and return the clothes to the victims. And there was quite a delay in some cases because, of course, the the, the clothes were needed for evidence. Um, And it was a painstaking process. And did you learn that at the time or was that something you learned later? No, that was something I learned much later when I started doing research. Yeah, it's haunting that detail. It is, it is. It's called toothpaste. It was the toothpaste that nearly defeated them. It was there in each suitcase. Each tube had exploded. Over every shirt and blouse they tried to mend. But one washed, one ironed. And one folded, until each trace of the blast, of blood and of fuel, was removed. And at last, after seven years of waiting, the clothes of each son, of each daughter, were returned to each mother, to each father. And the unread pages of a journal of a girl who lived to twenty were unfolded leaf by leaf ironed one by one, her words returned, clean and washed, in their pages. See, what I like about that poem, which is what I like about a lot of the poems that, you know, uh, I keep coming back to, is that it, it tells you something you didn't know, but at the same time, as soon as you read it, you go, well, that must have been how it was, you know? That sort of sense of the alien and familiar. Because... We all carry toothpaste with yeah. us on 
on holiday and it's something that I certainly I had never thought about and something I became aware of as I started to write about this was just how important the objects belonging to those who died mm. became. They, I think they became a way of remembering and respecting lost lives and I guess it's about kindness and it's about remembrance and it's about I think what's interesting about the terrorism that has come to our doorstep, and Lockerbie, I guess, was the first example of that on, a, on, on the grand scale, is that it's changed how we react to each other as human beings. And perhaps sometimes it brings out the marvellous as well as the murderous, as mm. I think Seamus Heaney said at one point, that although there's often not much to inform the history of mankind as it were in terms of looking at what we do to each other just occasionally something else comes through and I think I think that's certainly been the case with Lockerbie and it still is it's still going on 30 years uh, from the event Have you ever had any feedback from people who are involved with the Lockerbie incident to your poems? Yes, just recently now that this is out um, the um, the policeman that I refer to, who was 18 uh, when this was happening, who decided to do a cycle to Syracuse event um, to raise money for local mental health charities um, at the 30-year anniversary, he met with the other, with some other rescuers, with an 86-year-old woman who had lost her daughter, and a local resident at, at Lockerbie, uh, a man called Peter Gisaika, had met Peggy, Peggy, Peggy Otanasek, her name, her name is, at the gate with her husband, and he knew whenever he saw them at the gate that this was an American couple coming to ask about the girl that had landed literally on her, on his front hedge, and who had lain there while the evidence was being collected, as quite a few of the bodies did. And what seemed to happen with one or two more than one or two local people, that that happened too. They seem to refer to the person as my boy or my girl. There was a, a connection, even though the person was dead. And so when her mother and father came, he gave them a pebble from the place where, his, where her daughter had landed. There's a poem on it, if you'd like me yeah, to yes, read it. Course, yeah. Very simple poem. The Gift from Peter Giseka. Park Place, Lockerbie, to Peggy Otanasek, Baltimore. The sky was too high, too wide for her grief. When Peter saw the American couple at his garden gate in Lockerbie, he knew at once why they had come, invited them in. He gave Peggy the pebble he'd used to mark the spot on the hedge by his house where her daughter fell. Thirty years on, she waits by the roadside, for the rescuers cycling to Syracuse from Arlington Cemetery. She holds out her palm, shows them the pebble. It is what she has now, a piece of the land from the place where her daughter fell, where Peter found her. It's very strangely intimate, isn't that, you know, after all the huge forces which combine to make that moment, but what it makes is a very intimate human moment. Yeah, and I do know now that uh, Peggy Otanesic has had that read to her. Mm. 
just in the last couple of days. And it's a connection. I, I mean, that's a connection, I suppose, between myself and the policeman and a woman in Baltimore. And these connections are continuing. There have been marriages, there have been friendships. Things have changed as a result of that. I mean, had that plane landed in the water, as it may well have done, perhaps if a flight controller hadn't given uh, the pilot a few more seconds by the way he diverted them, or had it had the plane not been late, then all the evidence would have been lost, and things would have been very different. I think just the the fragility of life that I think I probably am referring to in that first poem that you become aware of sometimes when you fly, however exciting and wonderful flying is. Um, we all, I think, are, ever since, particularly Lockerbie and more particularly 9-11, I think we are very aware of it. I remember at the very beginning of the, um, the commemoration of 9-11 actually seeing one of those windows from the plane and I think that was probably what was in my mind when I was looking out of it. Something that you do all the time in a very relaxed way and just occasionally the reality of what could happen I think hits us and I think seeing the moon very close by certainly makes you think about your fragility. History, like poetry, often rhymes Mm. and there's a, a figure that you write about in your Lockerbie Sweetie poems who's been back in the news recently, Robert Mueller, for a lot of people, particularly younger people who weren't around when Lockerbie was such a huge news story, might not be aware that Robert Mueller, who was employed to investigate whether the Russian government had been interfering in American elections, he has a long and distinguished career. And he was actually the person appointed by the American government he was as acting U.S. Deputy Attorney General. He was in charge of the Lockerbie investigation. And you write about him in, in the book as well. I'd like to invite you at the end of the, the podcast to read that, that poem. But before that, what was your sense of him? What attracted you to write a, a poem about, about the investigator? I think because, as you'll see when, you, when we read the poem, he seemed to react to it in a very personal way. Unlike many people in the Trump administration, of course, who seem to be spending a heck of a lot of time misquoting poetry, whether it's Robert Frost talking about uh, about walls or trying to rewrite the, the poem on the, the foot of the Statue of Liberty, he did seem to go into the idea of right and wrong in quite an interesting way. It may not be to everybody's taste exactly how he responded to it, and the conclusions he came to. But I think he certainly responded to it in a human way, and I think policy in terms of how the objects are returned to people by the FBI have actually changed, and it's something I touch on. And the last poem in the book actually gives detail of that for future um, attacks and some more recent attacks, such as Charleston, Mm. where the policy has actually changed because of Lockerbie. And because of the kindness of a lot of people in Lockerbie and the sort of thing that I was referring to in Toothpaste, that painstaking determination that at least something will go back in as whole a way as possible. We shouldn't give the impression that the entire collection is about Lockerbie. It's very varied. There's all kinds of sort of topics related to flight and, and sometimes not related to flight uh, in the book. 
What I wanted to ask about next was the poems. You have a number of poems relating to the moon flights, the various moon flights, the moonshot. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary this summer of um, the original moon landing. Uh, but these poems that you've, ri- you've written about that obviously go back some time. It's something you've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and meditating upon. What, what is it about the moon flight that appeals to you as a, as a, as a poet? What, what did you, why did you glom onto that? Partly because it was around when I was growing up and it was something I was quite aware of as a young child because I travelled to the States in the 60s. My sister was sending me souvenirs to do with that when I was a young child in Scotland and she later moved to Orlando and when my son was small more recently I I remember seeing some of the effects of the, the moon landing or rather the space missions because you would be able to hear that sonic boom sometimes in Orlando or if you happen to be at a theme park um, with your young child, you could look up in the air and you could actually see a, a space mission. Um, you, could, you, you, could see, you could see the lights anyway. So I suppose there's an element of interest in that. But just journalistically, I think it was the 12 men who walked on the, on the moon. Their personal reactions that I thought was, mo- were, was most interesting. And I was particularly interested in the last man on the moon, Gene Kernan, and some of the observations he made. And the fact that he decided to trace his daughter's name on the surface of the moon. And just the way he talks about it, and the way that quite a few of those 12 talk about how it made them see the Earth. They went to discover the moon, but I think they did discover the Earth. And I think as a poet, their view of just how precious our Earth is is something that I hope I bring through in sonnets like Earthrise and some of the more personal things. I mean, what I was always taught as a journalist is that news is about people. And the astronauts themselves doing that, doing, doing that extraordinary thing, I think, are the most interesting. Shall we hear a poem? This is one that was inspired by the words of Jean Kernan. It's called Amy. On the terai of the moon, tired of coring rocks, I slug moonstones into space, do giant bunny hops on film, imagining her laughter as my camera rolls. And in the stillness of moon nights, I feel the tugging of the cord to Amy's yellow nightlight on the table in her room. And I trace out Amy's name in grey dead dust. And I know when we come back to our footprints and the stiffened flag, Amy's name will still be there in the sands without wind, without tide. And then the story continues a few years later, many years later, when this same astronaut is an old man. It's called Earthbound. I stand here with the crowd at Cape Canaveral now and then, Remembering that wet ash taste of the moon, the silver lunar module rises up on film, legs display, charcoal grey, falling away, an image running backwards of a bug splattered at full throttle on the windscreen of my car, its spindle legs askew. Now and then in winter sun, I feel the thud of re-entry boom and judder through my feet, and I know they are back. At home in my backyard in the cold of winter, I look up, hear my spine clicking, 
remembering its lightness. And on the silver disc above, I know just where, in the windless stillness, I traced out Amy's name with my finger in grey moon dust. Moving on from the moon, you write about Alzheimer's, about memory, and I believe there's a personal inspiration for those poems. My much older sister, the one that I talk about um, in This is a Photograph, uh, and who emigrated, uh, developed Alzheimer's recently, and I suppose that's on, that's about flight as well. It's about the flight of the soul, because although you haven't lost the person, a great deal of them disappears. And it's something I wrote about in a poem called Snow Angel. Snow Angel, My Sister's Wings, 2011. We found you in the garden of the 23rd house, lying on your back, legs and arms akimbo, making snow angels like you did as a girl. The white roots of your brown hair, startling now, in reflected snowlight. Where's Hannah, you said. I want to play with Hannah. We brushed the ice off your blue nightdress, warmed your freezing hands inside ours. It's all right, we said. We've come for you. We'll take you home. But you knew, as you always did, when we lied. The collection also contains two poems, uh, a poem each, about two Scottish poets who are no longer with us, George Mackay Brown and Edwin Morgan, both of whom have uh, got imminent centenaries. Uh, Edwin Morgan's centenary is next year, and George Mackay Brown's is in 2021. And I just wanted to ask, using those two poets as a jumping off point, I guess, um, is death a form of taking flight? Yes, I think it is. It's the it's the ultimate taking flight, isn't it? It's, it's an the, awfully big adventure. An awfully big adventure, as somebody once said, yes. Um, and I write about that in um, poems like A Pocket Full of Poses on the basis, which kind of personifies death and the fact that we can never escape it. I happened to be at the Edwin Morgan um, event at the book festival, at the Edinburgh Book Festival. In fact, I, I was lucky enough to be commended for that particular poem, the Snow Angel one. Because, with this amazing sense of timing that only Eddie Morgan could have had, he died when everybody was there at the book festival, or very close by, and they managed to have a an evening of poems for him. And people like Robert Crawford, Jackie Kay, were reading his poems. And I remember being very impressed just by the, I suppose, the sense of friendship, and also the thing you can never get away from, of course, with, with, with Edwin Morgan, um, is his own fascination with other worlds. Mm. I mean, you know, it's called his, um, one of his collections from Glasgow to Saturn, which showed exactly where his heart was in two places, Glasgow and Saturn. And as he says himself, I think, in uh, um, At 80... You know, he says, push the boat out, compañeros, unknown as best. So with all that going on in my head, um, plus just some interest in his poems like the Loch Ness monster poem and Strawberries and his love of the Kilpatrick Hills, I wrote this wee poem, which I hope is a tribute to him. It's called A Meteor Shower Was Expected, Lines for Edwin Morgan. We weave him a sailboat of gorse and laurel, 
Daisies and Rowan from the Kilpatrick Hills Carry him safe this late August night In the storm of a planet that burned for Bede and Columbus We peer through grey cloud For the tale of the comet Swift Tuttle Through silver-spent rain from Perseus To stars yet unborn In the blue of the listening Pleiades where the plesiosaur swims, a jaguar weeps, and the meteor shower, when it came, was expected. It's not only poets that you commemorate in this book, or even uh, relatives, friends, etc. You commemorate, well, I think I'll let you explain for yourself. People. Mm. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that one of the things that poetry does the other mediums perhaps can't do is it somehow records the experiences of people who have a story to tell and it's often the stories that that go under reported and one of the one of the stories that interested me was um Rose Gentle and her campaign when her 19-year-old son Gordon died in the Iraq war and I read an interview with her which talked about how she heard the news. And I wrote this as a result, which happened to be written round about the time of the Battle of Flodden, 500th anniversary. It's called The Fleurs of the Forest, Jamie, 2004. That's his kit bag lying there. I wonder if his shirt's folded square. I was hated turned as collared in. He's got that lang and lanky cutting grass and digging gardens. The army recruiters looked that smert, stunning by the horse and the cross. They let him feel the wet of the gun, telt him there was mere than cutting grass and digging gardens, offered him a trade, said he'd see the world, wear the black cock feather. That's his kit bag. The officer brocked it. He said, Jamie fell with honour. He said, I couldn't see him. Couldn't touch his hair or turn his collar down. And I showed him the garden, Jamie dug. The grand, that brown and empty, waiting for the floors. And that wraps up for another edition of the Scottish Portrait Libraries podcast series. As tradition dictates, some thank yous. So, obviously, thank you to Aileen Ballantyne for taking the time to talk about her new collection, um, Taking Flight, which, as I said earlier, is published by Lewith Press. Thank you, dear listener, for taking 30 minutes out of your time to listen to our podcast. And thank you to Will Campbell, who provides the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. As always, we'll be back again next month. Uh, if you want to keep up with what the Scottish Poetry Library is doing between podcasts, there are a number of tried and true ways. So, of course, we have a website uh, you can find at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We have a Twitter account. You can find that at By Leaves We Live. Facebook. Yep, we do Facebook. Scottish Poetry Library is all you need to type into the Facebook search engine thing, whatever it's officially called. And finally, we do Instagram as well, where you'll find 
images of events at the poetry library, uh, the new books that we've got in, um, all kinds of poetry goodness. So that brings us to the close of the podcast, but it'd be very remiss of us not to finish on one last poem. So over to you, Aileen Ballantyne. The Investigator. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Robert Frost. At Arlington Cemetery, on the longest day of darkness, the names of the dead are intoned one by one. An FBI man quotes Frost, dark against light, winter versus spring. He lists the items he saw on the shelves of a small wooden building in Lockerbie. A teenager's single white sneaker, a Syracuse college sweatshirt, never worn, toys wrapped up for Christmas, packed in the case of a father who never came home. Each charge is outlined with precision. Robert Muller has total recall of all that was broken. When the darkness falls again, he will remember. Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.